Well, greetings, greetings, and welcome to the show. This is Wrong Place, Right Crime. I'm your host, Frank Zafiro, and this is an open and shut episode with Rebecca Rosenberg. Now, this is a bit of a departure. I usually talk about crime fiction, uh, but uh, we're going to talk about true crime on this episode, something I haven't done very often. If I'm being honest, uh, true crime has always felt a little bit like a busman's holiday to me. Uh, having been in law enforcement, uh, the fascination just wasn't there uh, like like it is for a lot of people. I certainly understand why, and I think it's uh, nice to bring in uh, a, a writer who's who's delved into true crime every once in a while just to spice things up on uh, Wrong Place or Right Crime here. So we're going to talk to Rebecca Rosenberg, who wrote a book with her husband. Both are journalists. Both covered the case in question uh, real closely, the trial especially. And uh, But I'll let her tell you all about that. Uh, before we get to Rebecca, I do want to let you know, Wrong Place Right Crime is proudly sponsored by Down and Out Books. Down Out Books is a mid-sized publisher of crime fiction, most of it at the grittier and darker end of the spectrum. If that sounds like something you'd like, you can go to their website, downandoutbooks.com. That's downandoutbooks, all spelled out, dot com. Down and Out Books, take the journey with us. All right, uh, windy but sunny today as I record this here in Central Oregon. I hope the weather's treating you well uh, where you are. In fact, I hope life is treating you well, and if it isn't, escape into some good crime fiction, or as in today's episode some true crime. Let's talk to Rebecca Rosenberg. Uh, well, hello, Rebecca, and welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Now, your co-author, uh, Salim Algar, who is also your husband, is not available for the interview, but he was uh, available to work on this book at any cost. Yes. Uh, the two of you are uh, both employed as journalists at the New York Post. Do you work together there or just both work at the Post? No, we both just work there. He actually covers education. I cover uh, crime and courts. So there's a reason then why your name was probably first on this book. It's in your wheelhouse. Yeah. And I, and I actually covered the trial, which is what led to the book. Um, so I've actually been covering this case Wow. For, I mean, I covered it a tiny bit when the murder first happened. Um, and then, oh no, I'm sorry. Let me, let me go back there. I covered it a tiny bit when the reinvestigation began. Um, but then once uh, Rod Coughlin was arrested, I covered, uh, you know, the case from then all the way up to his trial. And we all know how long it takes to finally get to trial. And, and it was quite a lengthy trial um, I believe it was about six weeks long. So I covered all of that. And then my husband came in when we got kind of the, um, you know, this very tight deadline to turn the book around. And so we, we have two kids and it, and it required a lot of, a lot of discipline to meet that deadline. Um, I had to fly my mom out. She watched the kids and we spent every night and weekend working for six months. So. For people who aren't familiar, um, th this does seem like one of those trials that is really big where it happens. And I don't know how big it is, you know, across the rest of the country or the world. And and maybe it was huge there, too. I, I don't know. But for people who aren't familiar, we're talking about the murder trial of Rod Kovlin. And 
for someone who maybe never heard of the guy before, how would you, what would be the thumbnail sketch of what this trial was about? And of course, what, what your book covering it is about. So uh, Rod Coblin is this handsome um, Ivy league educated uh, man who, who ended up married to Shelly Danishevsky. She was a successful banker. They had two children and the book um, really is about their relationship. Like, you know, essentially she married a sociopath and he, it's a lot about domestic abuse, I think, because, you know, he, he, he abused her for years verbally and in other ways. And it was just hidden. It remained hidden for years and years. And she tried very hard to keep their relationship together. He was a, um, you know, just a, uh, a gambler, a philanderer. And, and as when she finally decided to split from him, that is when he his rage just really became so great that she even realized that he was going to kill her. She knew it. And I think that, that really touches on this like very tragic component with domestic violence where, you know, it's often too late by the time the appropriate authority. I mean, she had a restraining order. She had everything. And he still was able to sneak into her apartment and kill her. And although that was that ultimately is what you know was revealed to be the truth, the initial death, as I understand it, was ruled an accident. Yeah. So initially, uh, initially, what happened was, I mean, he's quite clever and quite manipulative. When the police responded to this, um, you know, expensive apartment building, and they're confronted with these kind of this upscale family, and he, even though she had a restraining order even though there were things that just didn't add up, he made it seem as though she must have just slipped and fallen in the tub and, you know, cried and the police just kind of bought it. So it was really just a a major bungle um, on the part of the NYPD, Um, kind of stunning what happened there. And then um, it was just all, you know, she had scratches on her face, she had bruises and, you know, it was like, it was New Year's. I'm sure people, you know, maybe didn't want to work later. I don't know. But um, but yeah, uh, they just did not, you know, recognize that, oh, this is really suspicious here. And, um, and everybody just kind of passed the buck. Uh, so initially, I believe the cause of death was undetermined. Um, and the police said it looked, the, you know, it didn't look like there was any foul play. It looked like an accident. And Rod thought he'd really gotten away with the perfect murder. He had been living across the hall in the same building while they were separated to help uh, sort of divide the um, child care duties. And, you know, and he thought then, OK, I'm going to, you know, now not only do I not have my uh, wife to deal with, but I have her millions and will be able to pursue my passion of backgammon and and women. And, um, and it didn't work out that way uh, because of her family. Her family knew it was him, had a lot of suspicions, felt things didn't look right, and really lobbied lobbied months later to have her body exhumed. So the DA's office actually like I said, judge signed the order at the DA's office request, but to have her body dug up after it was buried 
And when a full autopsy was done, they discovered she had a broken hyoid bone, which only oh. happens if somebody strangles mm -hmm. you. Yeah. Or perhaps a very high impact car crash. Yeah, it requires a lot of direct force to it. It's very indicative of either strangling or, or hanging. Yeah. So that's interesting to me. I, I, I was a police officer for 20 years and, and some of the things that you mentioned are seem like pretty large oversights. I wonder if there were some kind of politics going on behind the scenes or what, what could have caused that. Um, it's an interesting yeah. piece to the puzzle there. I think so. I mean, I think part of it was, you know, I think that there was a racial component to it a little bit, you know, which is a shame, like sort of this mentality, like, oh, these are, you know, wealthy people, you know, that there was just, a, there was less of a, I, I don't know, they weren't quick to Their initial insumption was that everything was as it said, as opposed to yeah, even though there skeptical. Were yeah. And, and to me, that was a little bit, um, you know, kind of like interesting. Um, and then in addition, I think that because it was a holiday, there were, you know, the, people had to wrap up the work um, and, and there was maybe an overtime issue and, and things just kind of fell through the cracks, hmm. you know, everything got, got kind of that first day, but then it got even weirder because you had this whole autopsy issue. And that really um, confused everything. Uh, uh, so from the NYPD perspective, like why were they letting this? So, so basically what I say, what we wrote in the book is that there, there's a, a man who calls himself a rabbi. He's not actually a rabbi. And he is a medical supply salesman who runs a nonprofit whose sole uh, objective is to prevent autopsies because I should have mentioned Shelly was an Orthodox, a very devout Orthodox Jewish woman. And this organization, their main objective is to prevent autopsies on Jewish people on religious grounds. So obviously if like, if foul play is suspected that that gets waived, but this guy comes in, meddles in it, says the police told him there's no foul play. It looks like an accident. And the family had wanted an autopsy. He, he, he sort of pressures them the other way, speaks to their rabbi, puts them in a position where they feel like they really can't proceed with that autopsy. Um, and so that kind of really delayed the investigation, it delayed, um, you know, just ruling this a homicide. And, and then uh, after, you know, after the body was exhumed, everything became clear, but even things like a lot of, they were able to get some surveillance footage, but there were things lost because that investigation started so sure. late. And I also do think the lead detective was, had a lot of homicide cases at the time and was maybe a little bit overwhelmed. So they, the NYPD allowed this, not really rabbi, you know, this medical supply salesman into the crime scene. And so the, the day after this happens, he comes into the crime scene, cleans up all the blood, disrupts everything, you know, is moving blankets around after the body's taken out. And so this is just really like, to me, stunning that in New York City that that would be allowed. Um, and, and really made it difficult when the prosecutor brought the case to trial you know, that really gave the defense this, you know, how do you trust the crime scene? 
it was so um, so uh, disrupted. But in between the exhumation and the trial, Rod Kovlin wasn't he wasn't sitting on his hands or resting on his criminal laurels at all. Um, he was still scheming. It sounds like. Oh yeah, absolutely. He he's he really is just uh, is somebody that seems to have no conscience at all. You know, the way he roped his children in, the way he went after his parents, you know, he just, anything that got in the way of his objective, which was really money. I mean, he wanted money so he could pursue his passions. Uh, yeah, he really was scheming the whole time. And and um, and if it weren't for the dedication of her family, of Shelley's family, he probably would have gotten away with it. I mean, I think if, if they didn't lobby on her behalf and really you know, they got lawyers involved and they just wouldn't let him get away with it. And it took years and years and a lot of money. I mean, I, the, the father, her father ended up going bankrupt. Um, basically, I, I don't know if bankrupt's the word, but went broke trying to fight for visitation of the children and make sure, you know, pay for lawyers fees to make sure Rod would be held accountable for his daughter's murder. But yeah, I definitely think this was a very high profile murder case in New York City. It really got a lot of press attention, you know, when um, like Rod Coughlin would come out of family court, there would be, you know, 20 um, reporters and photographers and, you know, TV stations. And then even when the trial occurred, I mean, you, you, we, there were three different, I mean, Dateline, 2020. Yeah, they, they were all in there with cameras the entire time. Um, and this is a six-week trial, so that's like quite a commitment. You know, all the major outlets were there. Um, so yeah, definitely had a very large media presence. And, you know, when he was convicted, you know, the DA came to the courtroom, stood outside, gave a press conference, surrounded by, you know, 30 plus reporters and the family gave a press conference. So yeah, it definitely was, and it was covered by all the major, major newspapers and TV stations. So definitely a high profile case in New York. And, and it doesn't take much to see why just the description of events, you know, how, how, who, who involved the money angle, the, the fight over the children, his, you know, increasingly demented schemes that he came up with throughout the course of the trial. It's very sensational. Um, and I guess a little bit disconcerting that it, it really happened and that this person really exists. I mean, it's one thing to read about Hannibal Lecter or see him portrayed on the screen. It's quite another to see, you know, a real person be this, you know, uh, this cold, this sociopathic, uh, this manipulative. Yeah. I mean, what, what really was, sometimes it was difficult to write, like for both of us as parents, it was just so disturbing what he did to his own children and seems to be just completely remorseless that the damage he did, not just by taking away their mother, but by subjecting them to everything he subjected them to, um, is just, it's just hard to believe a parent is capable of, of that, you know, and, mm. and, and just, and like, you know, we mentioned the book, I mean, he plotted to kill his own parents. He, um, he just, they're really, he didn't, he doesn't have normal, normal boundaries and normal sense of right and wrong, that he is a true sociopath. 
Well, I, I'm going to ask you a question that I never ask any of my crime fiction guests because of spoilers. But since this is a news mm-hmm. item, I think it's okay. Uh, what was the outcome of the trial for people who've been listening to you describe this and probably are a little bit sickened by some aspects of it? Uh, is there a happy ending, so to speak? I don't think this will ever be a happy ending, um, but he was convicted and it was kind of, it, it really could have gone either way, I think, in a lot of ways, because it was a very circumstantial case. It was not an easy case. Um, I think what really got him convicted was the prosecution was able to introduce all of this just horrendous behavior that occurred before the murder mm-hmm. and years after the murder. And so he just, he he really just came across as a monster and and you couldn't, you know, once that was what they were left with, it just, well, then who else did it? But what you really got a sense of, especially at the sentencing was the incredible damage, the incredible damage to, and that any murder causes, you know, this is just the nature of crime and how far reaching that damage is. You had his children come in, or I'm sorry, his daughter didn't, but a statement was read on her behalf. His, his son came in um, and spoke, his family spoke, her family spoke, and everybody is just, will forever be haunted by what they went through. Um, they will never recover. And and uh, and I think it's still, is very much a tragedy, even though he ultimately was convicted. Well, the book is called At Any Cost, A Father's Betrayal, A Wife's Murder, and A Ten-Year War for Justice. It's written by Rebecca Rosenberg and uh, Salim Algar, and um, it is available now for Macmillan Publishers. Uh, Rebecca, I'd like to say thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. All right, there you are, folks. Uh, Rebecca Rosenberg, uh, her husband uh, and co-author wasn't available at the time of the interview, uh, but she sure did cover it well. Um, interesting case. I've already made my position on true crime pretty clear. It doesn't necessarily uh, stoke my fires as much. Um, but I'm always interested when uh, someone who covers the case, a journalist in particular, from the very beginning, uh, then writes a book about it because, you know, you have to think that they have a little bit of an outsider perspective while still being very privy to, to the facts of the case. And so I suspect the book that Rebecca and Salim wrote to uh, be really on point. All right, on our next episode of Wrong Place, Right Crime, I have a special guest that I've been looking forward to having on for quite some time, William Kent Kruger of Cork O'Connor fame. Uh, We had a great conversation. Uh, That's the good news. The bad news is I had some technical difficulties, and so it's not as long of a conversation as I would have liked. I essentially lost part of the interview, Uh, but... The good news is uh, there'll be a bonus interview on our next episode, which is the feature episode of October uh, with Maria Maradi. And you'll find out about her next week. Zafiro news for you. Working on a couple of books, like I've mentioned, uh, that'll be the next two coming out. River City number seven, Dirty Little Town, and uh, a book called The Ride Along, which is set in the Charlie 316 universe. Uh, I suspect both will be out either by the end of the year uh, or shortly thereafter. Uh, A lot of things could break either way to move that up or push it back. Uh, 
but if you want to read something right now, the Anya trilogy, which is really a quadrilogy because there's a prequel that I wrote with Jim Wilski is on special right now. So the prequel, Harbinger is free. The other three books in the series are all 99 cents. You can pick those up on uh, special now. They're always pretty cheap. All right. I want to say thanks to Rebecca for coming on the show. I understand it was one of her earlier interviews in support of her book. And I thought she did great. I also want to thank Down and Out Books for being the sponsor. And of course, you the listener uh, for checking out the show, for sticking with me when I try different things like true crime or, or something a little off the beaten path. Uh, you get rewarded with uh, some staples every now and then, like get to hear from William Kent Kruger, who's uh, pretty well known in the uh, crime fiction circles. That is next episode, the feature episode for October. Until then, this is Frank Zaffaro reminding you that sometimes you got to be in the wrong place to write crime.